Hi, and uh, we'd like to welcome Elizabeth Lundbeck uh, to New Books and Psychoanalysis today to speak with us about her most recent and fascinating publication, um, The Americanization of Narcissism. Um, welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you, Tracy. Yeah, um, I wanted to begin, I guess, the, the New Books Network, we ask um, a question of uh, almost all of our authors um, to start off the interview. And I wanted to ask you just to talk to us about, you know, how it was you came to decide um, to write about narcissism's Americanization or this book. Okay. Well, this has roots long in my past. Um, when I finished my first book, I realized that there was a leftover question which had to do with the personality disorders. Mm-hmm. I've really been interested in, in the personality disorders for about 20 years and kind of the, their uneasy fit in the psychiatric sort of epistemology. And I think it, the, the uneasy fit continues, like trait versus state character versus um, symptom. Um, And my first job was actually at the University of Rochester. I was hired by Christopher Lash. Um, Very interested in his book. Um, I think it's a brilliant book. I think it's a a product of its time. I think it has a lot to tell us about the time. And I also think it's um, very problematic in the legacy it's left to us in thinking about narcissism. So for about 20 years, I've been thinking off and on about narcissism and got serious about it about six years ago and decided I had to write this book finally. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, so you went and studied, you were a, in a colleague of Christopher Lash. Um, I guess that, that leads us to um, the next question. So largely the listenership here um, is a psychoanal- psychoanalyst, uh, psychoanalytic fellow travelers, patients, etc. People who may or may not know um, about um, Christopher Lash. Um, Could you explain to the listening audience um, the central role played in the making of your overall argument in this book by the writing and thinking of Christopher Lash? Sure. So Lash, um, brilliant polemicist, a historian at the University of Rochester, um, published a book um, in 1978, um, The Culture of Narcissism, which made an immediate Splash in learned and popular circles. He was actually featured in People magazine, um, invited to the White House. Everybody knew about the book. Um, Narcissism became the the topic of the day. Um, The role the book plays is that I call the book The Americanization of Narcissism because narcissism before the 1970s really didn't have a sociology. It was a term that was used by psychoanalysts who, who had been puzzling over it, worrying over it since 1914. Right. But in terms of the wider publication, um, there was not much talk of narcissism. And you can look at this um, by doing a Google Ngram or looking at New York Times, you see a spike in the starting, oh, in the 60s, but really spikes up in the 70s. Um, so... Something is happening. Hold on. Something fell out of my microphone. Did you lose all that? Hold on. No, it seemed to be recording. I think that we're fine. We're going to, we'll keep going. Okay. Yeah. Um, Very strange. You were recording and I was being quiet and I think we're okay. This is new books in psychoanalysis and we sometimes have technical errors. Okay. Back back to you, Elizabeth. (laughs) So um, I was talking about how Lash's book kind of gave narcissism a sociology. Um, so published in 1978, and as your 
analyst audience will know, the 70s was the time of a revolution within psychoanalysis, um, largely around Kohut, but also around Kernberg, when narcissism became um, like the focus of intense debate and controversy. My feeling is, and my book is really argued around this, is that the analysts and the cultural critics, not only Lash, but others, were arguing basically around the same set of um, sort of antipathies, poverty versus plenty, gratification versus renunciation, and so on. And my argument is that that's in some ways why Lash's book was so readily accepted, is that we were used to these um, antipathies and antinomies, whatever. Um, But I also think that Lash's book had an unfortunate consequence for narcissism's sort of public fate reception um, that continues to the, this day, and that is that it entered the public discussion tied to a critique of consumption. Right. So that narcissism in popular culture was tied to excess and gratification, whereas in within psychoanalysis, um, it is it was um, largely tied to renunciation because the narcissist is the person without needs. The narcissist needs nothing. The narcissist of popular culture needs everything. So there was a kind of inversion, a twist in translating psychoanalysis for the public. And I think this continues to this day. Um, This is a non-psychoanalytic question, but I uh, also have a background as a historian. I I couldn't help it as I was reading this book to think about um, the work by the sort of... uh, the consumer um, critics, the historians like T.J. Jackson Lears, um, you know, uh, Jean-Christophe Agnew, um, David Nassau, who, who I studied with, and um, thinking about this work as also perhaps um, um, in conversation with, <laughs> with, with some of that work as well. Uh, is, that, is that how you see it situated? Or Oh, absolutely. I think that the late 70s, early 80s, was the time when the, the historian's critique, critique of consumption kind of reached its high point. Uh, <laughs> consumption was all bad. Um, interestingly, um, John Agnew, I think, has kind of changed his tune somewhat. I, I think he's among the most brilliant of that whole group of, of cultural critics. Um, historians began, oh, well, actually, people were consuming in the 18th century. There was a revolution then. Actually, they were consuming earlier. Um, It wasn't just that at the turn of the century, we moved from production to consumption, but it's been a long process. But so social critics criticize. um, And Lash and Reef and other social critics, that was what they were doing. Um, Right. you be, the book takes us uh, from Freud's um, famous essay, which you've mentioned, on narcissism, um, and leads us through um, myriad uh, manifestations and understandings of the very same term, uh, bringing us through the me decade, which you're referring to now and beyond. Can you explain for the listening audience um, your take on Freud's thinking regarding narcissism, uh, given, that that's, given that that's part of the, your uh, launching pad? Yeah. So... Freud's um, take on narcissism was 
well, first of all, covered a lot of ground. I think there's basically 90% has to do with the essay on narcissism. 10% is the kind of narcissistic figure from the Bindle Types essay, 1931, who kind of strides across the world stage, um, is a font of creativity, but also has a great capacity for destructiveness. That is the narcissist in the management literature today. Right. So it, it's a brilliant a very short character sketch by Freud. Freud also has throughout his writings um, kind of little bits here and there where he, he refers to the narcissist self-sufficiency. Um, so that too has been um, incredibly influential. That said, one of the main thrusts of um, the essay has to do with the kind of sovereign self. Um, I would argue the Freudian sovereign self, the self without needs, his majesty, the baby, the child who needs nothing, um, and so on. And that is in the Freud of 1914. Interestingly, um, due to practices of translation, um, the German word that was translated elsewhere in the, in the standard edition as self-esteem is rendered in on narcissism as self-regard, which has led to an incredible amount of confusion. Wow. I because how it's being, I wonder how, um, in the Phillips, uh, penguin edition, it's, uh, if it, if, Oh, it's not, I looked it up. It's not translated as self-esteem, but elsewhere in the, the strategies translated the word substitute as self-esteem elsewhere in the same edition. And Erickson, who was reading Freud um, in the German and was, was um, very familiar with Viennese German, obviously, um, also talked a lot about self-esteem and located that in on narcissism. So there's any number of controversies. Did Freud, was he talking about self-esteem or not? Well, yes, he was. I mean, translation is not 100% word to word, but it's, I think it's an interesting choice that self-regard has a very different feel to it than self-feeling. Mm-hmm. At the end of the essay, Freud does talk about self-esteem and our need to regulate our self-esteem. I think that has been an incredibly rich vein for analysts since then. Um, so self-esteem is not a product of the me decade. Mm-hmm. Self-esteem actually is in Freud. It's in the 1930s Viennese. Um, it's something that we all must um, sort of have, regulate, monitor, manage, and so on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, I was thinking in your uh, writing about your understanding of Freud's um, essay on narcissism and his thinking on narcissism, I was looking for um, uh, the stone wall uh, more, uh, the stone wall of narcissism, more the, more the psych, you know, obviously the cultural critics are not going to write about the psychotic patient. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, that I think that, that patient or that person is also uh, part and parcel of uh, uh, is is in that um, that essay. And my sense of of that essay is also Freud's telling us, I don't like to treat these people. Right. <laughs> so I have a um, chapter on the book called Inaccessibility, yeah. and it's really about well, and also another chapter on gratification yep. that really kind of rehearses, rephrases the whole analyzability question Mm -hmm. Um, because for at least, I don't know, 60, 70 years, there's been talk of this so-called new patient of a psychoanalyst, the 
patient who suffers from, or the widening scope patient, the patient who suffers from something other than hysteria or obsessional neurosis, the foundational psychoanalytic complaints. Um, and there's been debate. It's in balance. It's in other writers from the 1930s about whether or not patients of this sort are amenable to psychoanalytic treatment. Um, by the 1950s, at least in America, um, the criteria for analyzability were so um, strict and demanding that there was a, the concept kind of folded from within as much as it was um, attacked from without. And from without, it was attacked by Coe, it was attacked by others who said, wait a minute, we can treat these patients with so-called narcissistic transferences with psychoanalytic methods. Mm-hmm. Um, you see it in the British object relations theorist Winnicott. Um, you see it in, um, like I said, in balance and others, this, this, but it, the mainstream in America, at least was ego psychology. Um, the patient basically has to have good object relations, um, an intact ego and everything right before he or she begins analysis. Right, right. The patient, right. The patient that doesn't need quite as much help. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> it leads us back to the question of, back to the question of gratification and, and the transformation of, uh, of analytic technique. Um, but in the, in the book, I'm sort of, I want to lay it out for the, the listeners and potential readers. Um, you do introduce the readership to two distinct psychoanalytic thinkers, and, and they are primarily, although others um, are, uh, are certainly um, part and parcel of this text, but the but the two main um, heavy hitters they each get their own chapter. One is Kernberg and one is Kohut. Um, could you talk to us about um, their differing understandings of narcissism, just to lay it out so people get a feel um, for for these these two thinkers? And then I then I I want to ask you a, well, why don't you do that? And then I, then I have a question. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, to put it very schematically and simply. Um, and I think it does capture a real difference. I, I think of Coet as the kind of prophet of healthy narcissism right. and Kernberg as the theorist of pathological or malignant narcissism. Mm-hmm. Um, so healthy narcissism, which got dropped completely from the popular conversation because it didn't fit with what the critics, um, their critique, um, the idea that you need a little bit of narcissism, some quantity of narcissism to actually exist and to do anything creative, worthwhile, make an impact on the world. Mm-hmm. That's associated with Kohut. Kernberg um, brilliantly sketches the malignant narcissist yeah. um, starting in the 70s. And this was picked up um, by Lash especially um, because it fit with the kind of cultural, the preoccupations of the critics. But as I argue in the book, Kernberg was not going to buy the critic's argument. He was much more nuanced and wrote a fair amount about, or continues to write about normal narcissism. And so in some ways, Kernberg and Koa agree. But at the time, if you look at the literature, analysts were fighting tooth and nail over Kernberg versus Koa. Oh, yeah. Which was actually good for psychoanalysis, I think, because... (laughs) Controversy is good. Right. Um, right. And what my, my sense is that, and this is what I argue in the book, is that um, narcissism was the vehicle through which psychoanalysis kind of transformed itself, broke its allegiance to ego psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
led to the kind of pluralistic analytic scene we have today in America. Right. No, that that's that's quite true. Um, in in reading about um, you know the the sort of primacy of Kohut and um, and Kernberg in the book, I. I began to think about other analysts, right, who were writing, I think, at the same time, more or less, like Sheldon Bach or Herbert Rosenfeld, even a Hyman Spotnitz, and they didn't really catch the attention of the culture critics. Could you, how in the world, I mean, given how unlikely it is today that we would have um, a culture critic utilizing psychoanalytic thinking, how is it that um, a Lash or a Reef, I mean, you know, got to Kernberg or Kohut in, in the first place? I mean, how would they, did you have a sense of that? Right. Well, I think it's important to point out that psychoanalysis was part of learned conversation, the learned worldview in a way that is not today, except maybe within the academy and even not that very much anymore. Um, From the 50s, 60s, 70s, critics were right the major cultural critics were steeped in analytic thinking. Um, David Riesling, for example, um, the author of The Lonely Crowd, the best-selling work of sociology in the 20th century, at least in American sociology, um, had been in analysis, was um, in dialogue with Eric Fromm. Um, his book is very analytic in conception. Um, analysts and cultural critics were in conversation with each other. Um, Alan Wheelis, who wrote The Quest for Identity in 1958, relied a lot on um, the lonely crowd for his kind of take on what was wrong with the with current American scene. So that's the first thing, first thing to say that psychoanalysis had a kind of ambient presence that it no longer has as much. Um, I would argue it's still present. It's just not always marked as psychoanalysis. Um, That said, I think a lot of this had to do with Kohut, um, who I think was a brilliant politician Um, He was the most Freudian of the Freudians until he wasn't. And what he managed to do was to take on the Freudian establishment um, and not get banished from the analytic fold as every other um, major thinker who had taken on the establishment had been. Was he he was president of the APA while he was allied with ego psychology or did he manage that after? I'm, I'm pretty sure it was while he was still ego aligned with ego psychology. But, I mean, that would make that would make sense. But I, I was wondering if he was that master. I, I don't. I don't remember the exact year. His. I don't know um, yeah. I mean, his early article on observation, which um, caused quite enough work, was 1959. So I think it was okay. in the 60s, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. Interesting. Um, there was. Uh, I mean, I read the book in a reading group. Actually, it came about at the end of a. a course that we were taking on a technique class. A bunch of us were, you know, just sitting around and talking. We thought, wow, we have time in our schedules um, that we never normally have carved out. Let's read a book together this summer. And so right. your book, um, it, it seems it would be a refreshing, um, uh, you know, sort of a reprieve from technique, a reprieve from theory. It was a, a chance to just, you know, so- soak up uh, the mind of a historian at work. Um, so out of that reading group, some in, there were some interesting observations. There are people who are largely analysts or interested in psychoanalysis in the old 1950s sense. They're like Marxists who like psychoanalysis. 
<laughs> yes, they still exist. Um, right. So, all right. So one thing that one question that the group had um, is that um, there was a little bit of a confusion as to what made narcissism was the argument in the book that narcissism was particularly American or is it really, can we understand narcissism as a product of modernity and late capitalism? I mean, is it a, would you, is the book saying that there's something unique? How about this? Is it, is, uh, is there a relationship between narcissism and American exceptionalism to ask an old historical question? (laughs) Okay, I see. I understand the question. Um, I'm actually not arguing that narcissism is particularly American, although many people would say that. Um, what I'm the Americanization refers to the conceptual ad- apparatus mm-hmm. um, through which we understand the American character, which then is cast as particularly um, narcissistic. Um, are Americans more narcissistic than others? That's such a, a sort of an American broad stroke question that it's it's sort of it, to me it's not it's not the most interesting question. Mm-hmm. So, it's an interesting question, but that's not the question that I set out to answer. I'm I'm just interested in tracking how it came to kind of take over cultural criticism and why it had such purchase. Um, And it happened first in America. So some Brits reading Lash are like, you know, why do Americans criticize themselves so much? Why do they like, you know, why are they so self-flagellating? One of the reasons I think it um, took off in America first, well, first of all, Cohen and Kernberg were here, but that's not, I mean, there isn't, Know, transatlantic analytic conversation at that time. Um, the cultural criticism post-war, post-World War II cultural criticism in America was quite different than post-war cultural criticism, say, in England. In America, a lot of the problem was about excessive individualism or not enough individualism, depending on who you take, but also a lot of critique of affluence. Right. In Britain, people were poor. Um, there was no critique of affluence, and the signal works of sociology were about the community. Young and Wilmot um, work on the slums, for example. It was not about the sort of glad-handing, um, sort of salesman, the slippery, almost psychopathic salesman figure that you get out of Reisman. Um So I, I think that you know, I'm interested in how um, sort of the cultural surround, the intellectual tools um, shaped our understanding. But as to whether um, you know, Americans were more narcissistic than others, probably, but it's a kind of a question that, you know, all we have is the categories that, that we have. We don't have what people actually were. Right. Like we can't go back and re-diagnose people. Right, 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 right. Um, I was, I think, I think that, uh, this group that I read the book with, we were, we were drawn to it also because of the pleasure um, of reading uh, a book that tells us about a moment in which psychoanalytic thinking was taken seriously, uh, you know, as something to be uh, in a way to think about problems in the culture, even if, you know, we can understand that maybe the way in which Lash utilized those ideas was, um, was, was flawed. Um, today we have maybe a Zizek or a, a Butler who, you know, are, are kind of doing that work, but their work is, is less accessible than the work of Lash. Um, we just disconnected. Oh dear. I, I lost you. Uh oh. Okay, hold on one second. Are we? 
Now we're still recording. It's great. Um, you're still there? Yes. Yeah, I, I heard Butler and then I didn't hear anymore. Yeah, something. It just, okay, but we're, we're still recording. Uh, that's great. All right. The technology is, the technology is, is helpful in this regard. Anyway, um, I, I was, I wanted to ask you a question since you were engaging, you know, with, with the, you know, the, this, topic, the way in which a psychoanalytic idea could be utilized and put forth in the culture. Um, in what way um, could you imagine um, today uh, the psychoanalytic thinking um, being put to use outside of the clinic uh, contemporarily, or, or how could you see it being deployed, if, if you could imagine it? Well, I think it is being deployed outside of the clinical setting. Um, around narcissism, especially in the management literature, there are hundreds and hundreds of research papers on the narcissistic leader. Is narcissism a plus? Is it a minus? How are we going to titrate the right amount of narcissism? This has been going on within the management literature since the 60s and 70s. And interestingly, Kernberg has written a lot about groups. Right. Um, was very much part of that conversation. I would say in the last 10 to 15 years, it's really um, entered public the public kind of conversation. If you go to a kind of airport bookstore, which always has a big wow. yeah. section for traveling executives, there's always stuff on you know, how to be a leader and so on. And the, basically the consensus now is that, well, we know leaders are going to be narcissistic. We just have to make sure they're not too narcissistic. That is kind of get the right amount of narcissism in our leaders. <laughs> so I think that psychoanalysis is very much alive in that sort of part of our culture. Um, Michael Maccabee, a psychoanalyst who um, worked with Fromm, um, published um, a book in, I think, 2002, or maybe that was his article, um, on the productive narcissist, making an argument for the virtues of narcissism as long as it's kept sort of in some kind of, reined in in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say uh, it's interesting that The New Yorker, every two weeks or three weeks, there's a sort of the stock, you know, analytic cartoon. Yes. Um, and I don't think it's just in New York that the couch and the analyst um, signifies something. Um, I think in advertising um, and sort of development of products and so on, there's a huge amount of analytic thinking going on. Um, It's just not named psychoanalysis. So I think there are places in the culture. I think the... um, sort of Fairburnian model of the frustrating object um, and how difficult it is to separate from that. There's a a wonderful book by David Solani on um, called the illusion of love, which is about why um, abused women can't leave their abusers. It's a very powerful argument, much more powerful than, and he argues this as well, than learned helplessness. So I think there's room, you know, for public policy thinking that is somewhat psychoanalytic and it's going on. It's just, as I said earlier, it's often not named as psychoanalysis. So I'm not as uh, down on psychoanalysis as as psychoanalysis as fortunes as some are. Um, I think analysts don't in general do a very good job of kind of thinking broadly about their public's 
um, that we can do a better job of that. But I do think there is um, room for, you know, very sophisticated analytic thinking. Um, but it seems to be hot, uh, can't can't hear you. You can't hear me now. I can. You can hear me. Okay, great. It seems to be um, in uh, the examples you cited, really um, in the private sector, highly. I mean, it's you, know, you said it's right. on what like Wall Street and advertising, and I was thinking, wow, that that's you're right. I mean, I, I do see that literature. It is it is out there, um, but uh, I and it's not named as psychoanalytic, but with where you know it's hard it's hard to see where else it is and it's interesting that it's made it's made it such an impact in um in those spheres uh yeah 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 i mean corporations are hiring um psychoanalysts to coach oh yeah the chief executives paying a huge amount of money oh yeah for these people so Right. I mean, corporations don't waste money too willingly. Mm-hmm. Um, someone's seeing some value in this. Boards are seeing value in this. Right. But it, it is in the um, private sector that this is going on. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I certainly know analysts who are, who are working at, a, you know, at, with hedge funds, et cetera. It's pretty, mm-hmm. it, it's, in, it's interesting work and it certainly pays the bills much. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. It really pays the bills. Um, so, in, in the book, um, the book itself is divided up into two sections. And the first section, um, for the readership and listenership to know, it, it will help the lay analytic reader um, to become familiarized with the work of Kohat and Kernberg. Um, I found the second half of the book, perhaps because I'm also I'm a clinician and I know Kernberg and Kohat pretty well, um, I found the second half, I mean, completely fascinating, um, where you parse the dimensions of the discourse on narcissism into six domains, right? Um, right. I mean, your work as a historian absolutely takes flight uh, as you take us on a conceptual tour. Um, but I wanted to ask you to elucidate, um, as you can for the listeners, how you came to... how how these six categories, and I'll name them, we have self-love, these are each chapters in the book, independence, vanity, gratification, inaccessibility, and identity. Um, why, why these six? I mean, how do these six relate to something that's peculiarly um, American in the realm of narcissism, if that's an appropriate question? Okay, that's, that's a great question. It, I will say it took me a long time to figure out how to write this book. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is impossible to write a linear history of the development of the concept, right. I would argue. Um, Michael Stone, in, writing, in putting together his um, essential papers volume on the borderline concept, basically gives throws up its hands somewhere in the 60s or 70s and it just it branches everywhere and the same thing is true in narcissism you start with freud and frenzy and then branches out so you cannot tell a coherent unfolding towards the present type of story so i decided um to break down um, dimensions of narcissism, the most, what I, to my mind, were very important dimensions. So I, and I also introduced them in semi-historical, um, order. So the first would be self-love. And this starts with Freud's essay on Leonardo from 1910, um, in which narcissism is cast as love of self. So Leonardo, the artist is narcissistic because he, 
puts himself in the place of his mother and loves a young boy in the way that his mother had once loved him. So this to Freud um, signals an incapacity for object relations because it's sameness. The, the homosexual relationship is not cast as between two people. It is an internal relation to oneself. Narcissism is in 1910, an, an arrested development, an arrested stage in development when one should move from self-love to love with the other. So what the chapter um, kind of traces is the way that this is turned upside down. Mm-hmm. So self-love in 1910 is an impediment to object love. By the 1970s, um, enabled by COET, but also enabled by others. Um, Self-love is the foundation for object love. And this is captured in the cultural saying that you have to love yourself before you can love anybody else. Um, So self-love becomes self-esteem and self-esteem before it's demonized is seen as necessary to make oneself a sort of participant in civilized social life. Mm-hmm. The second chapter on independence takes its um, start from Freud's 1914 essay in which he um, argues for independence as a, a kind of value beyond question. Um, and it's not just Freud who argues for this, but his followers really um, work hard to stress, point out at every turn Freud's independence. (laughs) Dependency is seen as a weakness, particularly um, associated with women. It's a reaction formation for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So like self-love, independence is dethroned by the 60s and 70s, and dependency is seen as the mark of maturity, the ability to admit to needing others, um, not being this kind of sovereign Freudian self. Um, And so the narcissist, the one who needs nothing, needs no one, is seen as the problematic character, not the dependent um, individual. Vanity... um, is, I, it was kind of inescapable because it's so much part of the conversation now about yeah. narcissism and especially the way that the term was feminized in cultural work from Lash's time through to our own. Um, and in this, I um, recaptured a, what I thought was a fascinating early 20th century conversation in which um, pleasure and delight in the body um, was sort of running, was just at the center of a wide ranging conversation among psychoanalysts and psychologists. Mm-hmm. Um, there was as well an attempt to um, kind of question the assumption that women were more vain because they didn't have a penis and therefore um, clothing was an attempt to make up for that. So it's a, it's a very, rich conversation, I would say much richer than the conversation today in which um, vanity is really um, proscribed. It's, 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 it is, um, especially for psychologists, research psychologists, 
feeling good about oneself is a sign of narcissism. Well, Koha and Kernberg come along and say, wait a minute, feeling good about oneself is necessary to life. Mm -hmm. Um, Gratification traces um, a a long-standing um, argument divide within psychoanalysis between a Freudian view and a Ferencian view. Um, it retells the story of the Freud forensic break um, and the consequences that that had for psychoanalysis. The again, the prescription of gratification and the kind of hollowing out of the analytic relationship and the kind of intense asceticism of the analytic setting. Um, By the 50s and 60s, analysts are are proposing sort of ancillary modes of relationship to supplement the transference because the transference has become so impossibly austere. Mm -hmm. Um, So... gratification by the 1960s and 70s, again, is turned inside out. Um, Don't you quote, if I recall, um, Janet Malcolm with, uh, with, uh, what's his name? It's Aaron Green. Yes. Thank you. I'm like Kurt Eisler, Aaron Green, (laughs) (laughs) whoever, whoever we imagine it was. um, Right. With, with, you know, the impact of, of Kohut on his thinking. It's really, um, well, it's interesting because a number of analysts I've talked to have said, um, don't much like Kohut's theorizing, but I really learned a lot from him about what it is to be an analyst. And I think one of the most interesting, um, of these is Tony Chris, who, who writes about this a lot. It's like, how did we forget? Why did we need Koha to remind us that we're dealing with someone who's in pain? But we did need Koha to do that. And, you know, Tony Chris is by no means a Kohutian, but he really um, was quite sort of brave to, you know, given the reigning eco-psychological environment to get out in front and say, we've got to pay attention to this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, oh, so should I go to the next chapter? <laughs> well, well, actually, I just, I wanted to, to comment on, on something just so, so the listeners know um, that while Elizabeth is, is taking us through these chapters, which are really incredible, um, incredible reads, they read, I would argue that they read as oh, even, even, just on their own perfectly well. I, you could pull one out, and I imagine that we could put the vanity chapter um, in any uh, gender studies course and, you know, of a particular ilk, and it would really, um, would be, you know, a terrific read. I also thought um, that the uh, chapter on self-love really belongs in, you know, in, in any, like, you know, queer studies class, thinking about, you know, how did homosexuality and narcissism come to be conflated because you really make mincemeat out of that idea. And I, you know, I know it's been made mincemeat out of before, you know, mm-hmm. but it, maybe, you know, there's still an ascendant idea that there is an inherent relationship between homosexuality and narcissism. It's a, it's a, it's a hard one, um, you know, to shake even within psychoanalysis, even within psychoanalysis today, for sure. And, right. and I think that uh, you just do, you, as a historian coming at it as a historian, and I believe you also per, are, are 
you've trained as a as an analyst. Is that uh, yes? I'm training. Yes, you're training. Oh, you, okay. I just I just graduated, <laughs> and best of luck to you. Um, okay, <laughs> but um, yep. Uh, but but I think that it there's something um about the way in which you go about um making the mincemeat that you make in that chapter and really separating out so well um the difference between love of love of sameness, love love of self, narcissism. You just keep on. Un- unpacking and unpacking and when you move to the next chapter in independence and we see how much Freud was so dependent and so needed to be mirrored himself he needed he needed a mirror held up to him um, so frequently and when he didn't have it he felt he fell apart those two chapters um, if, if you can't read the whole book I, and, and you know that's some psychoanalytic you know theory of Kernberg and Kohut go to those two chapters and it's a I, I thought they were a, a a feast. Um, I just wanted to let, to say that to you. I mean, they were truly a feast. Um, well, I yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, if you want to, you want to go, uh, let's see, we, we go, Oh, Oh, I want to ask you. Sure. Okay. Joan, Joan Riviere, you really uh, give her props. Um, what? I haven't, you know, I mean, I, I love her too. I mean, and she is sort of an underground, you know, we love her and she's right. like, you know, womanliness is masquerade is just such a, a touchstone of a piece. Um, as I read what you were writing, you write a lot about her sort of biographically. I learned a lot about her that I, that I didn't know. Um, and I had the fantasy that perhaps um, you could be her biographer. Any interest? <laughs> I actually thought of it for a while um, and then decided, well, I'll do this book instead. I think she's a fascinating character and has really been undervalued in the history of psychoanalysis. Um, Judy Butler found her and I think is the foundation for her being a kind of feminist fetish object. There's thousands of references to Rivera and performativity. Um, And she's a brilliant theorist. Um, She's very conventional in some ways about womanhood. Um, But what I liked about her was that she made the argument for the pleasures of narcissism. That is the pleasures of self-sufficiency. But she made it from a position of womanhood, not from a position of sort of male sovereignty. Um, So in a way, it's very essentialist, but it's a it's a very powerful argument. Um, She is in treatment first with Ernest Jones and then with Freud. Um, Both of them consider her a narcissist. She herself considers herself a narcissist, although she doesn't like that so much. But um, she writes brilliantly about what it feels like to be a narcissist. So I argue she's kind of the first phenomenologist of narcissism. Um, And she writes beautifully. So she's a pleasure to read. She didn't write a lot but everything she has written um, is a, a beautiful read. And it, her, her 1936 article on negative therapeutic reaction, basically about, again, the analyzability question, is a brilliant um, article. And it's cited by Kernberg, among others. Yeah, I mean, she really, you can, I think you introduce her to us as taking the difficulties in her own experience as an analysand and developing theory um, out of that. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, although she, you know, I mean, looking back on her, her I think Freud and um, 
Who did you say? It was Jones was her? Yes. Yeah, they, she was like a hot potato between them. Right. They did, like, you take her, you take her. I don't know what to do with her. I think they, right. they had quite a time. But she she gave us uh, a, a tremendous um, amount to think about. Um, and also her version of, of, this, of women as having something inside of ourselves that, like, we could be preoccupied with that's kind of delicious. You know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> I love delicious. Yes. It's delicious. I'm just I'm soaking in it, my own deliciousness. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> there is something, um, something very beautiful. And, um, well, it's such a, a rebuke to the male theorists. You yes. could only see lack right. in women. Right. And literally lack. And, and she says in a review essay, um, I think it's 1934, that you know, the, the Freud of 1914 basically looked at women and was jealous you know, this blissful self-sufficiency, um, the woman who's like a large beast of prey and a humorist and a, I forget what the others are. Um, but by 1934, woman is just defined by lack, lack of the penis. And she says, you know, come on. Um, it's much, much more complicated than that. It might look like lack, but that's because Freud, you're only looking at the surface. You're not being an analyst here. Right, you have to look. You have to look inside. You know, the mysterious continent has to actually be opened up and seen. Right, seen for what what it contains within it. I mean, I think right. that's what that's what she gives us. Um, there's uh, well, there's two more. There's two more chapters, but I, I we don't have a lot of time left. I want okay. to ask you. Um, so, another way of um, reading this book is. Uh, perhaps also on the Americanization of psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Um, this was something that came up um, in the reading group as well. I mean, we have two emigres, Kohut and Kernberg. They come to this country. Um, they sink their teeth into the, and they suddenly we find that they sink their teeth into the problems of treating narcissism on the shores of America. Um, wow. I'm wondering, what would you think about um, reading this book as a, as a way to also look at how psychoanalysis was Americanized? So I think it's- oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's a large part of what the book is about. Mm-hmm. And I'll also just throw in Erickson there, who oh, yeah. um, in his work on identity really kind of lays the groundwork for the whole narcissism uh, conversation 20 years later. And he, too, is an, an emigre psychoanalyst. Um, had been in treatment with Anna Freud. Um, and he just has such an incredible um, sort of take on the United States and what's different between America and Europe. And unlike many who come in saying, oh, the Americans are just, you know, sort of lesser versions of these richly imagined European bourgeois beanies and so on. He says he actually sees a lot of strengths in America, um, greater gender equality, um, less overbearing patriarchs and so on. Um, so it's, it's interesting. The conversation is these emigrants. And I think that, you know, it gives them a certain license. Although I have to say, ego psychology is also created by the Viennese. So, yeah. um, you know, an, an analysis at this time is largely um, emigre analysts. Sure. Sure. Um, <laughs> are you there? Yeah. Okay, I thought the sound just uh, might have dropped out. We're having some sound problems, listeners, anyway, but we're, we're, it seems to be recording just fine. Um, there was another question that came up in, in this reading group that I wanted to pose. Um, we were thinking about, uh, you know, the 
narcissism in America, narcissism as kind of perhaps um, in a country with, that blames poverty on the poor, mm-hmm. in a country that, you know, where the need to, where, where when one needs help to survive, one is construed as having had a moral lapse or has an internal defect. Um, we began to wonder if narcissism is a necessary byproduct of a cultural and social order that essentially conveys a message to its citizenry that it's, quote, every man for himself. Mm-hmm. If there's but a minimal social safety net available to Americans, are Americans forced to become more narcissistic or defensively grandiose um, in order to survive? Um, do we end up, um, does America end up with its arch relationship to taking care of the dependency needs of its citizens? Um, does the country end up fomenting a cadre of potentially thick skin narcissists? We can, we can do it. Um, we can do it by ourselves. Um, I mean, that's, that's a really interesting question. And I think there's probably something to that argument. Um, I'd be interested to, to look at figures for say Britain, which is very close to us in kind of social philosophy, but in some ways quite different. Um, I'm a little skeptical of the kind of broad stroke kind of causative arguments because at least as they're made by historians tend to sort of go decade by decade and you see sort of wild shifts in personality happening in very short amounts of time. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, certainly the culture supports a kind of grandiose self-sufficiency that is kind of on the the manifest level. Behind it, of course, are huge networks of support. Um, So, right, I mean, that that is a kind of American cultural type, the kind of, you know, frontiersman, um, going out on your own, the self-made man, and so on. So maybe, but... Is that, um, what's the relationship be that, between that and kind of pathological, malignant, Kernbergian narcissism? I'm not sure. I'm yeah. just not sure. I'm a little skeptical. It's, it's a Frankfurt School question, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm arguing against that kind of one-to-one or whatever you want to call it relationship between mm-hmm. sort of cultural personality and sort of social formation. I, I think it's more complicated. Right, right, right. I mean, I, I, would, I would agree, but it was, it was an interesting, I mean, I, I thought it was a fascinating question that came uh-huh. um, out of spending time reading, reading the book, the question of, you know, what, you know, how, how much do we um, have to inculcate narcissism to make up? It's almost, you know, the, the work on like the wages of whiteness in which right. it, it was, we began to think about narcissism as sort of a, an invisible, an invisible wage um, in, in the contemporary, uh, the contemporary scene um, <laughs> to make up for, you know, what, what we, uh, what we don't get um, taken care of that we have to do for ourselves. Um, well, I think there's something to it. I just, I, I'm not the expert on that. No, no, no. But anyway, it's a, but it's wonderful when, you know, you've written a book that um, foments and, and gets people thinking mm-hmm. um, in those terms. Um, so it is 50 minutes and oh. I do have to go by the time as much as I'd like to continue talking to you. Um, I, I have to go. I'd like to thank you very much for joining us. Um, I look forward to what you'll write next. You're one of the historians who really does take um, quite seriously uh you know, the, the work of, um, you know, in the human sciences, the work of psychiatrists, of psychoanalysts, and uh, we're, um, we're fortunate to have you. Um, so thank you very much. 
Well, thank you. It's, it's been a real pleasure, and the questions have been just terrific. So I've really enjoyed it. I'm glad. Okay. Till next time, this is Tracy Morgan signing off for New Books and Psychoanalysis.